Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. As we begin a new week on the show, a new month, uh, we have a great panel to get us uh, started uh, as August uh, begins to unfold uh, here uh, across the state, across the country. Um, I have to say, happy first day of school to all of you out there who are sending your children back in the many school systems that are beginning today. Um, for me, the first day of school is a very distant memory. My children are grown and out of the house. But I have to say, even though I've been in Georgia for like 38 years now, I still have this Midwestern approach to school. I always thought school was supposed to start after Labor Day, but of course, in Georgia and many other states, that has not been the case uh, for quite a while now. In any case, let's get right to our panel. We're really happy that Professor Adrian Jones is back with us today. Of course, she is a professor of political science and the director of the pre-law program at Morehouse College. Adrian, you were nodding when I said school is supposed to start after Labor Day. <laughs> yes, I, I moved down here to this Georgia, and um, I am annually disappointed that we are uh, kicked out extremely early, and in my opinion, asked to return early. I would much prefer the <laughs> late leave, maybe in June, and then return uh in September, but that's well, not it's always happen. it's always been no, and it's always been look, it's always been a controversial issue. Karen Owen is back with as well as well, professor of political science at the University of West Georgia, and now dean at the university uh, too. Hi, Karen. How how is it working out to have this uh, administrative duty as well as a, a continuation of your teaching? Oh, it's uh, keeping me very busy. I don't have a dull moment, but it's very enjoyable. I'm getting to see so many other parts of the university and help students in a very different way. So I'm very much enjoying it. Oh, terrific. Well, thank you for taking time uh, out of what's a very busy schedule to be with us today. Edward Lindsay is back with us. Uh, you all know him as a former uh, Republican state representative from Atlanta, uh, uh, Buckhead was in the middle of his district. And now Edward is also a member of the state election uh, board. So he's got a really important role as 2022 um, moves towards election day. How you doing, Edward? I'm doing just fine. Thank you for having me here today. And I wanted to save for last someone who we have not had on the show for far too long and who I'm just so thrilled is back. Former Congressman, Buddy Darden. Buddy, of course, used to serve as a congressman in the 7th Congressional District, which in his day uh, was a Democratic district that went from Cobb County all the way up to the Tennessee uh, border. And, Buddy, I have to admit that um, the pandemic caused me, and like a lot of us, to lose touch with some of the people who we like so much. And I have to say, you and I kind of lost touch with each other, and I'm certainly glad you're back. Well, thanks, Bill, and it's great to be back. 
you may realize that five of the counties that are now represented by Marjorie Taylor Greene were represented by me when I was in Congress. And incidentally, Dr. Jones, Hancock County, when I started school back in 1949, uh, we came in September. <laughs> there, there. Well, thank you uh, for that, buddy. All right, let's get uh, right to it. The um, It feels to me, uh, Karen, like the governor's race really, especially from Brian Kemp, really picked up a lot of energy uh, in the last uh, days of, of the week last week in the sense that Brian Kemp really launched a fierce yes. attack against Stacey Abrams, against President Biden's economic policies. Um, and let me just read you a little bit from what the governor said in a speech that he gave on Friday, um, and then we'll all talk about it. The governor said, there's no doubt we've all experienced a very frustrating and anxious last two years, made worse by crushing inflation and economic problems that are very real. And unfortunately, Washington, D.C. seems hell-bent on making life even harder and more expensive. There is no doubt that the Biden administration's runaway spending and disastrous policies have put the future of countless families in Georgia in jeopardy. And then he goes on and says and calls uh, Stacey Abrams a part of that problem, says that she's tied to the Biden recession. He says in his speech, Karen, uh, that there was there was um, uh, basically an announcement that we are in a recession. I'm not quite sure where we got that information. To the best of my knowledge, most economists have not said that yet. Karen, what do you think about uh, that attack? So I think the governor is turning up the heat, right? We're now 100 days or just a few less than 100 now before the election in November. And so it's time to really start attacking and hitting the ground going. And so what he's doing is actually probably making the state's election much more national and focused because he's tying Abrams to the economy, to the Biden administration and different things as that. But if you, as we will talk about, I'm sure in a few moments, the latest poll from the AJC in the state of Georgia, it is what voters are talking about. They're talking about inflation. They're talking about the economy, how it is affecting them daily. And so he's pushing these ideas that Abrams is tied to those policy initiatives because he can't tie her to any state-specific initiatives because she hasn't held office in the last few years. So that's the way he can connect to the policies that are out there. And I do think that it will become much more of him needing to turn and pivot, probably at some point soon, to his own record and what he has done to help in the economy of the state and, and fall back to that. But it will be just this continual battle of the economics and how people feel at the time they get ready to vote. Well, a follow-up to that is, uh, is an article by Greg Bloodstein in the AJC today that, uh, that had um, Stacey Abrams uh, coming out and uh, embracing uh, Biden uh, rather than trying to move away from him, which, quite frankly, is, is both a, a practical and, uh, and smart uh, thing for her to do. The fact of the matter is, while Biden may be underwater overall in terms of popularity here in the state, he still maintains a, a strong allegiance among the Democratic base. Uh, we can go back eight years and see what happened when uh, Michelle Nunn and uh, Jason Carter, the Democratic nominees in Georgia for governor and uh, U.S. Senate, tried to distance themselves uh, physically, <laughs> in fact, 
on one trip in which Obama came to Georgia and they suddenly had a conflict on the other end of the state. That uh, that depressed uh, the Democratic base, uh, and a lot of folks, I think, partly so believe that that, uh, that depressed and suppressed the Democratic turnout that year. Uh, by contrast, uh, if you look at um, what happened in 2018 when uh, Kemp was running for the first time against Abrams, uh, President Trump was underwater. People seem to forget President Trump was, was deeply underwater here in Georgia in uh, 2018 and 2000, and matter of fact, continued on to 2019. Uh, I went back and looked at a poll that the AJC uh, ran in uh, 2018 and another one in 2019. Uh, and in both of those polls, uh, Trump had a disapproval of somewhere between 56 to 59 percent here in Georgia. Nevertheless, Kemp uh, embraced uh, Trump uh, here in Georgia. And while that may have hurt him uh, in certain quarters, uh, particularly suburban areas, it did galvanize the GOP base and get them to come out and vote for him and help them uh, get that narrow victory over Stacey Abrams. And so what this tells us is that, uh, you know, what Abrams has realized is that, uh, you know, you don't win any friends uh, by distancing yourself from your own party's president, uh, and you may very well um, – lose uh, some of your own base. So she's doing the smart thing there. It's also, I want to add one other thing, uh, a cautionary tale for, for the GOP, not to not to put too much uh, faith on the fact that Biden is underwater here in Georgia. Uh, just as Kemp was able to win in 18 with an unpopular president, so can Abrams. And so the GOP has got to do more than just bang on Biden in order to, to get uh, Kemp over the, over the finish line. Adrian, Adrian, jump in. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm impressed perpetually with Kemp. Um, you know, I thought he did a great job during the primaries. Um, and this kind of announcement, in my mind, um, is a bit disingenuous, right? He's not uh, anti-relief money, which he's using to make inroads with the base. Um Yet he wants to try to accuse Stacey Abrams, who has not been in uh, state leadership recently, uh, for uh, presumably influencing the economy along with the president. Um, and then, of course, the president, you know, is in a difficult position with COVID, and it sounds like now monkeypox, um, the war in Ukraine, et cetera. Um, but from Kemp's perspective, I think it's a smart move to try to paint Stacey Abrams with the low ratings of Biden. Um, you know, but Stacey will be back, I'm sure, um, to emphasize where Biden is getting the money that he's using um, to impress voters right now. Well, buddy, I want to talk about that just for a little bit. And I, then we'll talk a little bit more about why what Stacey Abrams had to say about the Kemp attacks. But, but buddy, uh, look, let's face it. Uh, one of the things that Kemp did in this speech on Friday was celebrate his record in keeping the economy in Georgia strong. Um, we've seen over the weekend that he's now using federal relief money to give teachers in school systems across the state uh, spending money, I think 125 bucks for each school, um, yeah. so that they can buy supplies, that sort of thing. So, buddy, there's there's a little bit... Of, of uh, hypocrisy involved here. It's federal relief money uh, 
which the which the the, the governor uh, decries as being excessive spending by the Biden administration that in fact has gone a long way in helping Georgia uh, stay somewhat economically strong and which in terms of his teacher money that he's giving out, he's going to take credit for, but it's federal relief money. <laughs> well, it's a great Georgia tradition, even going back to the days of Herman Talmadge when he was governor to cuss Washington and at the same time rake in the money that Richard B. Russell <laughs> and Walter George uh, made possible. It's a great honor tradition, and Brian Kemp is just following a successful playbook. <laughs> But I want to mention at the same time something that Edward said, and I totally agree, is that you shouldn't run away from your party. Uh, back in 94, when Clinton was in underwater in Georgia, uh, I tried to distance myself from him uh, to uh, my detriment. And you got to stick with your own crowd and uh, because sometimes you alienate your own people by running away from uh, your party and your president. So sometimes it's best to uh, stick, as the song said from West Side Story, stick to your own crowd. <laughs> All right. Um, Greg, Greg Bluestein wrote about this uh, this morning. And one of the things he said, and I'd love to, Adrian, I'd love to get your uh, take on whether you think basically he's making an important point. He, he said that what Abrams is doing by embracing Biden and some of the other uh, positions she's taking is... Uh, her effort to rekindle uh, the liberal Democratic uh, base that uh, helped her come close to victory in 2018. And it was a turning point in Georgia Democratic Party politics, as Buddy Darden could certainly tell us, um, because it was the first time that we saw a candidate on the Democratic Party for statewide office decide that it was a progressive agenda that could uh, pave the way to victory rather than uh, conservative Democratic values. What do, what do you make of is Is, is Bluestein right in making that point? Um, I think that's true. I mean, I think that um, if Stacey wants to raise uh, the number of points that she's got between she and uh, Brian Kemp, um, she's going to have to press her relatively progressive message. Um, she's going to have to pull women out and other voters who may be interested, um, you know, for example, in this abortion issue. Uh, in our state and in the nation. Otherwise, I think she loses what she gained in 2018, which was to, you know, begin to change the color, begin to change the color of the state um, by encouraging the Democratic Party and the nation to understand um, that it's not a completely red state anymore here in Georgia. Uh, Buddy, I've got to turn to you on this. Because in the 2018 Democratic primary campaign, you and uh, Roy Barnes and a few others, what I call kind of more yellow dog Democrats, that old yellow dog Democratic coalition that thought you could bring together conservative Democrats to win elections, you backed Stacey Evans in that primary. And of course, Abrams uh, won that pretty easily by doing just what we're talking about, uh, uh, embracing a much more progressive agenda and saying we've got to reach out to a broader base. More, we've got to get more African Americans registered. We've got to get urban voters out, suburban voters out. So, how do you reflect upon that now as you watch the Abrams campaign unfold? Well, first of all, I was amazed at how well Abrams ran uh, in 2018. But the old dogs like me uh, fell into line, 
and they will again uh, when the election comes because intensity is so important in elections. And one thing that Abrams has got to do, and she hasn't done so far, is to restore the intensity that uh, she had. This is going to be a turnout election. Uh, people have pretty much already decided So, what they're going to do. There are not that many votes out there. So the key to it is who can bring their voters to the polls. And Abrams has got to get that old enthusiasm back in her supporters. And I think that's where she's going here. Edward? Well, I'm going to uh, compare Stacey to someone that I don't think any of y'all can believe I'm going to do so. And I'm going to compare her to a comment by George Wallace. <laughs> who used to argue that he was a voice, not an echo. Uh, and that's exactly what Stacey has, has staked herself out, quite frankly, throughout her political career, that she wanted the Democratic Party to be a clear alternative voice to Republicans and not simply uh, a Republican light like some other Democrats tried to do. Uh, in the early years when the Republicans took control here in Georgia. And so, you know, that's been something that she has wanted to uh, do uh, ever since I first got to know her when she and I first started serving together in the General Assembly, was to lay out a clear alternative path uh, for uh, Democrats to take to show a clear distinction from Republicans. And it makes for a, a more interesting race in the fall, quite frankly. Uh, when uh, when we can both sides try to stake out uh, clear alternative roads for people of Georgia to choose. So we'll just have to see which road they take. Karen? So I just want to kind of go back to a point that um, Buddy just made, which is about the intensity and the energy and how Abrams has really got to energize voters. And one significant part of the coalition for her win is African-American black voters. They have got to turn out they have got to be energized. And if you look at recent polling in this AJC and you get into the cross tabs, which is highlighted, and that is that right now she has about 80% of black voters supporting her, but she doesn't have over 90%. And normally we would see a Democrat polling, you know, over 90%. She and Warnock don't have that yet. You have quite a few black voters who are undecided, as well as you have about a third in this poll that show that they disapprove of Biden. And so she's got to pivot, and, and I'm going to say this in a way not just to energize, but to remind voters how historic her election will be for the African-American community. And that I haven't heard as much play out as she did in 2018. And I'm wondering if that's going to resonate a little bit more, and that will, again, energize those voters where they would have a historic moment to elect the first black female governor and if she's going to do that, and also one additional point is she needs the coalition of liberal Democrats, yes. She needs to pick up those independent swing voters. And I think after 2020, it's not the same independent swing voter we probably saw in 2018. 2020 was unique in picking Biden for president because sometimes it was just a complete anti-Trump. And Trump is somewhat on the ballot, but his name's not on the ballot, right? So how do you make sure that your policy conversations, that voice you want for the Democratic vote and the Democratic power to actually resonate with those independent swing voters? Um, okay, so I want to do a little uh, a his history here, because, Edward, you talked about the uh, uh, George Wallace, um, a choice, not an echo. It, that phrase actually goes back even further. Phyllis Schlafly, the anti-abortion crusader out of Illinois— uh, was, the, uh, to the best of my knowledge, the first one 
to use that expression as she tried to carve out a new path in Republican politics, uh, saying, I'm not going to give you the same old conservative rhetoric uh, that past Republicans have. I've got an aggressive pro- pro-life agenda that I'm going to push out. And then, of course, uh, and Buddy Darden, well, both of you, both you and Edward were around, and so was I. That became Barry Goldwater's uh, uh, trademark line in his race for the presidency in 64, Buddy. Barry Goldwater, a choice, not an echo. It's a time-honored line, but it does apply to the way that Stacey Abrams has run her campaign since 2018. Well, what Stacey Abrams has got to do is, again, as Karen and I have both said, she's got to intensify our voters. And it's an interesting phenomenon, but it always happens when somebody becomes nationally prominent, then they begin to lose back at home. And Stacey Abrams has penetrated the national news so much that even in the last year, last week's crossword puzzle in the New York Times, she was listed as one of one of the questions. So I'm saying that as she's gotten more prominent nationally and known nationally, she has slipped here in Georgia. So she's got to have to deal with that phenomenon as well and come back to Georgia and be a Georgian and uh, not be regarded as, as a national figure, because once you become a national figure, that's well and good in many respects, but it also has the effect of hurting you locally back with the home folks. But, Buddy, let me, let me ask you a question about the way in which you just framed that. Has she slipped here? It is, Karen Owen makes the point that she has not yet galvanized the African-American vote to the extent she needs to. I think the AJC poll put her five points behind Kemp right now, as other polls, including Fox News, uh, do as well. But has she actually slipped? Is it just a matter of how she builds at this moment going forward? Well, she's facing uh, two situations. One is she has not has not been uh, here uh, all that much, and at the same at the same time, uh, the power of the incumbent governor cannot be underestimated. And that's what's happened here with with the governor, of course. Adrian, then Edward. I mean, I agree that Stacey Abrams has a governor's incumbency problem. Um, You know, she came so close in 2018. Some would argue that she did win, but Brian Kemp has been in that seat for the last, um, you know, quarter. And um, she also does not have the same playing field that she had in 2018, right? We had some real clear indicators that Brian Kemp and Raffensperger were voter suppressors in 2018. This really helped, I think, with Stacey Abrams' intensity and her ability to turn um, new voters, particularly black voters and progressive voters, on to her message. Whereas right now, amazingly, in the confusion of the big lie, um, Kemp and Raffensperger come off looking <laughs> like roses, um, because they um, resisted the former president's uh, request for 11,000-odd votes um, and to switch the electors, et cetera. And so um, I think that in addition to the incumbency of Kemp, people are feeling comfortable um, you know, with what he's done over the four years, with what Raffensperger did, even though there are a lot of arguments to be made about Raffensperger and his treatment of the Secretary of State's office. Um, and so... To Karen's point, somehow she's got to find something um, to get people excited so that they will show up, turn out, 
and um, increase her support numbers. Edward, if I may, I'd like to ask you to take this in a different direction before we get to a break. So we've got Stacey Abrams now saying, I am embracing President Biden. I think what he's doing in terms of his policies has been beneficial to the country. And of course, now that he he has Joe Manchin supporting uh, his uh, economic initiatives, uh, he, he may have a chance to really make some positive uh, strides. But let's let's. So she's sticking with Biden. Warnock is taking a slightly different approach to Biden. Warnock has not not completely moved away from the president, but he's been glad to goad him into he hopes action on things like uh, student loan debt, um, eliminate student loan debt. You've got to lower the price of insulin. He's been critical of Biden in any number of issues. It's interesting to watch Warnock's approach to the president as opposed to Abrams. What do you think about that? Well, Warnock's running a brilliant campaign, uh, and I say that as a Republican. I think anyone who, who looks at his campaign has got to be very impressed. Uh, he is uh, falling falling back to a traditional role of a U.S. senator uh, in terms of uh, bringing home the bacon, uh, not just in terms of dollars coming back to the state, but in terms of policies uh, that he believes will be popular with the state and, and help uh, people uh, on a day-to-day basis. And so, you know, there's no question, but that's that's the approach he's taking in this race uh, in order to not directly distance himself from Biden, but to show, hey, you know, I'm I'm here, uh, you know, yes, I have an ideology, but I'm the one who's coming back with policies that help you in your day-to-day life. Uh, and I, you know, and I'm, I'm very impressed with that campaign, as I was quite frankly impressed with the campaign he ran in 2020. Uh, but as opposed to uh, Stacey, uh, Stacey has a, a different tact here in that she doesn't have a record, as someone mentioned earlier, over the last few years in office. So she's got to figure out another way to move forward. And if there's one word that I think that, that our listeners need to remember from this day's session is the word that Buddy used and that others uh, here have picked up on, and that's intensity. Uh, she's got to lay out uh, on a not just policy but an emotional level uh, what uh, what her campaign and what her election will mean in order to drive turnout. And uh, I think Buddy and, and the others are absolutely right that when she's on that message, she's strong, as opposed to, you know, she wandered off that message for a short while in which she tried to go, I was a little bit surprised she did, to Republican light and, you know, you know, promise uh, things uh, very similar to what Kemp was already doing. But uh, to the extent that she can move back to that, that, that ideological uh, progressive point and also that emotional point of uh, to drive intensity, that's, that's where her sweet spot will be in this campaign. Karen, before we get to a break, add your comments. I was just going to say, you know, Senator Warnock has what we talk about a lot in political science is the incumbency advantage. And he also has the electoral connection, meaning he can claim credit for the work he's doing in Washington by pushing initiatives that really, as, as Edward said, you know, affect Georgians, bringing home the bacon. And he can advertise that because he is the incumbent. He has, he's not having to identify himself again to voters. He's got the name ID, and he can show what he's been working on. 
to let voters know he is here for them in Georgia. And that incumbency advantage does matter. Um, the one thing I will say, though, it is tough when your president is in a, you know, and you're in a midterm running when the president has low approval ratings, you get tied no matter what you say back to those national policies because you are part of that party. So he does have to kind of claim his credit what he's doing here in the state, but also know he can't divorce himself too much from the Democrats because he is a Democrat. And he's got to own that as well, as Buddy kind of mentioned earlier, own his own party and make sure that they're driving out and voting for him. All right, let's do this. Let's take a quick break and come back with more on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Edward Lindsay, Adrian Jones, Karen Owen, and Buddy Darden join me for today's Political Rewind. Buddy, very quickly, uh, when I haven't seen you for a while and now see you again, uh, it triggers a memory. Uh, I came to Georgia in the fall of 1983. Your special election to the U.S. House was the first political race that I covered here. And in fact, I was at your election headquarters the night you won your seat in Congress. So I think about that a lot, Buddy. What a glorious night. What a glorious night. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's move on. Um, And I'm glad we have a a couple of political science professors on the show today because I want to address an issue very quickly. Um, Approval ratings always get a lot of attention from the media and pollsters and I assume political campaigns paying close attention to them. But Karen, when I talk about the, the president's low approval ratings, others' low approval ratings, I always get pushback from listeners who say, why do you harp on that? Those really aren't important numbers. Karen, are they worth talking about or not? So I think they're worth talking about. Do I think they motivate and drive the end-all, be-all of all things politics? No. But I do think they have an effect. And what they have an effect is, is what we see as political scientists is when we model to look at what could predict an electoral outcome. So what could affect the midterms? We have seen historically that in a midterm election, the president's approval ratings, his job performance, when you put that into modeling for predicting how an election could change or the outcome of that, we see it does have an effect. And so I think that's why the media talks about it. That's why we as political scientists, because what we're looking at is past trends to try to understand the future, right, so that we can have conversations about elections and our elected officials. And that's where it comes into play. Does it need to motivate a voter? Uh, Probably not in conversations. But what it does say is where voters stand at the time. And so political candidates can react to that. And that's what I think is important as part of the campaign and and the motivating to voters what they hear in messaging. Adrian, you want to add to that? I just um, I have a more cynical view, I think, because, um, you know, I I completely agree. But I do think that the media drives Colombo's polls. Right. I mean, not only are Biden's approval ratings low right now, but it's a constant in the media cycle, which I think convinces some people who might support a Biden administration um, that 
you know, he doesn't have the kind of strength that he needs in order to, um, you know, be reelected in 2024 um, and to continue for the rest of the of his um, current presidential term. Um, this threatens his numbers in Congress and therefore his ability to pass legislation in the future. Um, so I'm always a little disappointed. It's very similar for me to the count on electoral night when, um, you know, we're watching state returns come in, but you really can't know the outcome until you see all of the numbers. It's not a horse race like on the track or something. Um, so I feel like the polls are important, um, but they do, I think, sway opinion to some degree, which for the incumbent party, um, where you're already going to lose representation, it's disappointing. Um, two things real quickly. One, uh, Bill, you're absolutely right. I've gone back and checked uh, Phyllis Shafley and Barry Goldwater, 1964, was a, a, a choice, not an echo. Uh, I was six years old at the time, so I blew that one. <laughs> to all my friends on Facebook who follow this show, who will raise this, I want to go ahead and do my mea culpa now rather than have to do it later. <laughs> Number two, in all seriousness, a question back to the two political scientists uh, and the professors on this. I'm fascinated by how much gubernatorial races are now nationalized, not just here in Georgia but around the country. And I'm just sort of curious. Is, is this a real trend that we're seeing races uh, get nationalized that we used to think would be separate and apart more uh, from uh, from what's happening in Washington? Sure, U.S. Mm -hmm. Senate races, congressional races, but but I'm fascinated by this trend, and I want to know y'all's thoughts on that. If I could throw that back to him, Bill. It strikes me, Adrian, that almost every race on the ballot these days is nationalized. I mean, the Secretary of State's race in Georgia is nationalized. The Attorney General race in Georgia is nationalized. And to a, a large extent, Karen, I think that has to do with the way in which uh, we've taken sides around Donald Trump for or against. Well, I don't know that it's truly been just a Donald Trump kind of 2016, 2018 change. And we saw this kind of, I think, leading in a little bit before. But to really answer your point, um, Edward, yes, we are seeing nationalization kind of going into every part of politics. It's not like Speaker Tip O'Neill used to say all politics is local anymore. You may have really great concerns at the local level, but candidates are talking on national issues and they're bringing those national issues down to the state and local. And so it is just infiltrating. I think a lot of it is how we get our information now. Um, the 24-7 news cycle, social media always. So these big national issues are kind of inundating everything and candidates at local and state level can gravitate to them and they can get air and get actually conversations starting instead of really focusing probably what we were used to, which is the state of Georgia, the gubernatorial election focused on balancing the budget, paying for education, paying for health care, those kind of very focused state issues um, that we had. I would also add, too, that the federal government has gotten very much more involved in state and local you know, policies because they are providing much, much more money down to the state. Um, and that has an effect on how we're messaging and what policies we're looking at. Okay, I, I thank you for that. I, I'd like to move on, and I, now I'm really glad we have two attorneys on the show because I want to take up a subject that I will acknowledge I am a little bit uh, perplexed about. 
Um, buddy, let me start with you, and then, Edward, I really need to get you into this. The State Ethics Commission today will take up what is being described as their biggest case yet. They're looking into a complaint against the New Georgia Project, which was a voter registration group that Stacey Abrams uh, founded, uh, and an affiliate organization, the New Georgia Project Action Fund. The complaint is that those groups raised $4 million and spent $3 million of it in the 2018 election, and that they never registered as political committees or publicly disclosed the contributions and expenditures. Okay. The Abrams, now, why is this important? Because the November election is three months away, and this is a, could be a black eye for Stacey Abrams and her campaign. The Abrams campaign counters that uh, what really happened was that they subcontracted the work they did that was actually election work out to another organization. It all gets very complicated to me, buddy. You and Edward helped me understand it. And then, Adrian, I'd love to have you jump in, too. Well, Bill, I don't think it's all that complicated. First of all, there's no agency in the state held in greater disrepute than the State Ethics Commission. Uh, it's appointed by uh, office holders who are there to protect office holders and, uh, and is tilted against, of course, challenges. So that having, having been said, I don't think that they have enough credibility to really make a difference. They might uh, be somewhat of an irritant and, and frankly, uh, a good bit here. But at the same time, uh, I don't think this is a, a serious matter. And if I were, if I were, uh, Stacey Abrams, I would not really, uh, pay an undue amount of attention to it because in the big picture, I don't think that, uh, the ethics, ethics, uh, question will affect the outcome of the election. It's an irritant, and it uh, creates headlines, but at the same time, if I were Abrams, I would not be uh, preoccupied with it. I would attack the process, especially coming three months before the election, rather than uh, the uh, substance of it, because if you're explaining, you're losing. So she needs to get in there. She needs to get in, get in there, and frankly, I call on her supporters, and they will, to disregard uh, what's going on with the Ethics Commission. That's just my opinion. Well, Edward, Edward Lauren Growargo, who, of course, is uh, running Stacey Abrams' uh, campaign, says it's a fishing expedition. And, you know, we know David Amati, the chair of the commission, was appointed by uh, Brian Kemp, Governor Kemp, and quite quickly started launching investigations of Abrams' campaign organizations. Edward? Well, the question is whether or not it has substance or not, and uh, and I do disagree with Buddy here, and um, in in part because uh, it, it it does appear to be rather fishy uh, in terms of the fact that you've got an organization created by a candidate running for governor, and a great amount of their activity was uh, spent uh, uh, promoting that 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 candidate, uh, and they didn't register as a PAC. If it's not illegal, it, or in terms of reporting, it sure ought to be. Uh, in terms of the transparency side, I, I think that everyone on this panel does believe in greater transparency. And I, I think certainly in terms of transparency, there, there's something fishy about what goes on here. Uh, certainly the Ethics Commission has had uh, taken some lumps over the last few years, rightly so, I might add. 
But in terms of the substance of the allegations here, I think that uh, that it does have some merit in terms of us taking a look at the existing law. If it turns out not to have been uh, an infraction, the law needs to be changed in order to ensure that there'd be greater uh, transparency down the road. Uh, and that's the bottom line. That said, will it change the, the race? Uh, no, it's not going to change the race one iota. Uh, any more than some of the allegations that were raised against Governor Deal uh, in 12 and 13 by the Ethics Commission had any impact on his reelection in 14. Uh, but it's certainly for the you know for those of us who fought very hard for greater uh, disclosure and greater transparency, particularly by outside groups as well as by candidates, it, it's it's a cautionary tale. And I would certainly hope that both Republicans and Democrats would seek to to increase the transparency. Adrian? I guess I'd, I guess I'd agree with that if the lawsuit or the challenge had come sooner, right? This is from 2018 behavior. This is not um, current fundraising that they're talking about. Um, and I think that, you know, we just talked about polls and their negative influence on the public. Um, you know, this kind of coverage is bad. If, um, even if it doesn't take them a lot of energy, it takes some. Um, so I am specious about the timing um, of bringing this complaint. It reminds me of a lot of the ACORN situation um, back in the early 2000s, right, where uh, there aren't necessarily problems, but the media coverage is a problem. All right, let's do this. Uh, let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back. We've got a few more stories I'd love to talk to the panel about on today's Political Rewind. So I want to very quickly say, Edward Lindsay, uh, uh, you uh, um, made a totally unnecessary apology about the phrase, a choice, not an echo. Uh, there is no, because and here's what I want to say about that. Of course, I'm on the show every day. The number of mistakes I make will always be far greater than what any of you do. And I'm always glad when either panelists or listeners point out when I've made some mistakes. So I hope you don't feel bad about that at all. Um, all right. I, so, buddy, I want to start with you. I want to start with you on this, buddy, and you can weigh in on, on any aspect of this you want to. What is going on with the Democratic Governors Association and other Democrats who are putting money into far right wing candidates in Republican primaries in hopes that they can uh, uh, get voters to uh, vote for those candidates, make them weak against Democratic opponents. We've got a Michigan primary coming up where the incumbent, Peter Mayer, was one of the uh, Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump. He's running against a far-right opponent, John Gibbs, who has got Trump's endorsement, who has said despicable things uh, about illegal immigration, about um, about uh, uh, so he's been he's been anti-Semitic, um, and yet Democrats are running ads which propose, which suggest they're attacking him, but are actually going to attract right-wing votes to him. Why are Democrats doing this? Well, Bill, first of all, it's obvious they didn't consult with me about it because uh, <laughs> I think it's a despicable <laughs> practice too. One of the problems is we've got too many consultants, and too much money in both 
in both camps. And they're always looking for things to do. The old expression, too clever by half. But frankly speaking, I, I uh, really am totally opposed to the practice. And, and uh, I don't give money to any organization that I remotely suspect might be involved in, in this conduct. And also, uh, you ought to be careful about who you vote for because that person might be elected. And I found out a long time ago, uh, in fact, I found out during the 1966 gubernatorial race, I believe, where uh, people crossed over and, uh, and voted for Lester Maddox, um, thinking that he would be a weak uh, candidate, easier for Bo Calloway to win. And that's the first time I remember that happening. But the Democrats uh, here are, I think, guilty of some uh, conduct that I, I really don't, don't think is very uh, in the best interest of the country and in the very best interest of, of the uh, political process. So I've been generally opposed to that from either side for any reason. I think that you ought to give money uh, to a candidate you support and uh, withhold money from candidates you don't. And I think you ought to vote for candidates that you want to be elected and uh, vote uh, against candidates you don't want to be elected. So I think the problem the fact is that we are so awash with all this money and all of these consultants that uh, nature abhors a vacuum, and, and that's where they're going. And both sides, incidentally, are guilty of it. Um, Karen, it, when I mentioned the Democratic Governors Association, they were putting money into uh, an effort to get Doug Mastriano uh, nominated as a Republican candidate for governor in Pennsylvania. Of course, he's a very far-right uh, candidate, and there are many Republicans who are in dismay over the fact that um, that seat should be winnable, but they think Mastriano has little chance to beat his Democratic opponent. We'll see. But, but Karen, here's the point also. Um, you've got the January 6th committee and other Democrats painting the Republican Party as far-right extremists, and then Democrats are turning around and putting money into far-right extremist campaigns. It's really a lot of uh, dissonance there. Yeah, it um, calls into question really what we're doing and when we're talking about playing in politics, right, and what's happening in our system. I mean, just not just the Pennsylvania race, but there's groups, outside groups, because there's so much money involved in these Secretary of State races, which have a great impact on our electoral system and what could happen when an election is actually counted. But I think Buddy makes the point, which is really important, either with the strategic play of money from the other side going into races to pick candidates or you're encouraging crossover voting, which is a strategy to get the weaker candidate in, that means that if the weaker candidate is elected in the end, then it's not best for representation or public policy in the end. And so what you should encourage, I would think, from partisan side, is each party picks their best quality candidate, and then that sharpens the contest in the debate in those general elections so that the best candidate wins and the best candidate is working towards the public good um, and securing that, you know, we have a very strong representative democracy. Is that going to play out considerably? Probably not, because there's too much money and too much cynicism and negativity going into our politics right now. Edward? I, I think, buddy, hits the nail on the head. And, you know, this isn't a, a, a plague on one party or another. Um, you know, it is a dangerous uh, path to take. Uh, I would call Claire McCaskill played it, I believe, uh, 2012. 
to her benefit. She she happened to to help get the, the far more far right wing candidate running for the U.S. Senate against her uh, nominated. But it is a dangerous policy, uh, and it weakens uh, the dem- our democratic system. It also creates greater cynicism from voters on both sides. Uh, it makes it more difficult for folks to to truly believe. Uh, in the um, principles that each party espouses when, when this sort of thing takes place. And at the risk, risk one time uh, of going back in history, I think part of the problem is getting back to what was said about some of people around Walter Mondale when he was losing the election. I can't remember who claimed, who, who used this phrase. Someone said that uh, the problem in his race was there were too many smart-ass white boys uh, uh, around them running the race. Uh, and, uh, and I think that that's one of the problems, getting back to Buddy's point, that we got too many consultants who are get, who are raising too much money and, uh, and using it. Uh, and, you know, for their own, oftentimes for their own benefit more than the democratic process. Ed, I, Adrian Jones, I heard that chuckle. <laughs> Go ahead, <laughs> Leon, and all this. I mean, I. I completely agree with my um, co-panelists here um, that it's risky to do this, um, that it might not work. I still think it's extremely attractive right now. Um, I am positive that B-Wins folks wish they were running against Jody Heiss, for example. Um, And, you know, I remember during the primary, people were talking about crossing over, for example, to um, make Jody Heiss the candidate so that Presumably, that would be an easier win. You know, there's no guarantee that that's the case, but it is clear that it is an attractive option where, um, you know, like a Brad Rassensberger really has a strong position right now. And, um, you know, it's unlikely that they're going to have the same kind of leverage that they might have had against Jody Heiss, whether Jody Heiss won or not. Okay, um, we're really close to out of time, but I want to take up one last issue, uh, if we can just spend a moment or two on it. Um, Edward, late last week, uh, uh, House Democrats passed a new assault weapons ban. It's a list of various kinds of assault weapons uh, that they want banned. It's the first time uh, since the mid-90s that we've had any action toward an assault weapons ban. It's not going to pass in the Senate. But I'm wondering what you think, Edward, about whether it will have a role in the uh, uh, prime and in the general election contest between uh, Warnock and Walker. Uh, I, I doubt it, to be candid with you, uh, in part because of the success that did take place about two or three weeks ago in which the U.S. Senate and the House uh, and the governor and the president signed uh, a more watered down uh, uh, gun bill, so that, that I think that that takes some of the sting off the table. Uh, you know, uh, weapons policy, gun policy is always something that's cropped back up. It needs to be fixed, and we've talked about it before. But I'm not sure if, if guns will be the issue. I think, quite frankly, the issue more for Democrats uh, will be a, the issue of abortion, uh, and for that matter, the 2020 election. Okay. I just, I lost track of time. I just lost time. Chase McGee, who, by the way, we welcome as our new producer uh, on the show, just told me we like got 45 seconds left. I've had such a great time talking uh, to you, Adrian Jones, Edward Lindsay, Buddy Darden, Karen Owen. I just, 
I could talk for another half hour. We're down to 30 seconds. I'm going to say goodbye for now. We're back again with a brand new show uh, tomorrow. So thank you all for being with us today. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nigat. Take care. Stay healthy, everybody. <laughs>